Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Anne Eisenberg, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina. We'll be discussing her article, Economic Regulation in Rural America, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Anne, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. And in this article, you talk about rural infrastructure. As an initial question, what is infrastructure in this context? How is our understanding of it maybe a little bit different than in the context of suburban or urban communities? And could you maybe set the picture a little bit for listeners on what motivated you to write this article? Uh, Sure. So I'll start from the beginning in, in terms of how I got started thinking about these questions. It's been a consistent theme in my research and even my whole overarching career for the past 14 years or so that it's harder to get access to goods and services in rural places. Um, And that's probably not too surprising to anyone. It's kind of something we all know from living in the world. It really applies to all kinds of goods and services. But I started paying most attention to the stuff that many of us consider necessary for either a basic quality of life or for something else that's really important, like vindicating legal rights. And so this limited access actually struck me first when I served in the Peace Corps in in rural Morocco. I saw similar themes doing a human rights internship focused on rural India. And then it was equally true when I moved to West Virginia after law school. And so as some examples, in Morocco, I was doing some research into family courts and women's ability to get divorces. But people would have to travel a really long distance just to get to a court there. In rural India, there was a parallel problem with women dying in childbirth because hospitals were so far away. And as a just really straightforward example in West Virginia, the roads were just really bad. So I kind of started my research agenda on rural marginalization with this gut instinct that this was wrong somehow. And I started advocating for better access to services in rural places. But I I was surprised at how much pushback I got in the face of that advocacy. So the counter arguments I was hearing are people think rural places are too remote and too expensive to serve. So I just started wondering, well, how did rural places or even anywhere in the United States ever get access to what we consider some of these foundational aspects of a functioning community. And that's what my understanding of infrastructure is is really starting to be. So one way to think about infrastructure is it's the services and amenities that have a lot of important downstream uses and where it doesn't necessarily work well to have a purely private system of competition. So transportation is a really good example of infrastructure It's not just that people want to travel, it's that transportation opens the doors to trade and to tourism and to growth. And if the private sector is left completely alone to manage the transportation industry, it's possible that poor or handicapped people might never be able to access it. So in the rural context, we might see a heightened public importance placed on some service 
or amenity than what we might see in the city because these goods and services are, are more scarce. They're infused with a greater significance to the community. So in my paper, I argue that we might want to think about grocery stores as being infrastructure in rural communities because of their heightened significance to the rural communities, whereas in a city, it might be one of many grocery stores, and so we might not consider it infrastructure. In the paper, you talk about rural diseconomies of scale as being one barrier or explainer for a lack of rural infrastructure. What are rural diseconomies of scale? Should we try to overcome them as a matter of policy? And if we should, is that a matter of doing the moral thing for our fellow citizens who live in rural communities? Or is there another reason why overcoming these diseconomies of scale is the right thing to do? Yeah, so one thing service providers are looking for when they enter into a new geographic area, whether they're public or private, is a return on their investment and an efficient use of resources. So for something like school funding, that wouldn't be profits, but it would be trying to get the best use per capita out of the public funds and to serve the highest volume possible of of sort of the output of students being educated by those funds. And so the challenge with rural communities is because they have fewer people, by definition, spread out over more space, they're almost always going to have higher costs per capita to serve. And that means they're more challenged to achieve economies of scale for these services, meaning that as service providers continue to serve rural communities, costs for the service providers actually go up rather than down. So it's a huge disincentive for any service provider. I do think we as a society should be trying to figure this puzzle out. There's absolutely a moral case for it. I I don't think we can just leave one-sixth of the population high and dry without access to the foundational amenities of life. I, I don't think it's fair. But my article focuses more on the pragmatic case for enhancing rural access to services, even though they're more expensive to serve. And the pragmatic case for this really centers on what we call urban-rural interdependence. I think the pandemic that we're currently in really illustrates how our fates are all interconnected. Urban communities still depend on rural communities for food and energy production and stewarding 80% of the country's landmass. So abandoning rural communities to being cut off from national systems like affordable transportation or high-speed broadband internet really isn't a good idea for anyone. One of the really interesting parts of this paper was the history it provides and the role of economic regulation when it comes to rural amenities and infrastructure. Could you maybe highlight some of the the role that economic regulation has played in this space and on the flip side, the role that deregulation has played? Sure. So my research suggested that rural communities were really better plugged in, so to speak, to at least some of the national infrastructure systems until the deregulatory movement sort of cut them off. So the regulatory regime that was in place from about the 1870s to the 1970s really intentionally and explicitly emphasized this principle of geographic equity for services like transportation and telecommunications, which are the sectors that that I focused on. And when you think about a black and white image in your head from, say, a World War II movie, you might think of a train station in a small town with two people saying goodbye to each other. And most small towns, as of 1929, in the United States, had access to passenger rail service. 
And that's something which seems almost unthinkable now. Uh, so that really caught my attention in terms of, wait, we used to have that and now really don't. How did we get there in the first place? And then how did we get here? And so how we got there in the first place was these regulatory mandates for common carriers and utilities. And the mandates instructed service providers that they needed to not discriminate against these less profitable locations and that they needed to pursue universal service, meaning these sort of public interest-minded priorities were embedded in the regimes that govern service providers. The deregulatory movement, which of course was this complicated, multifaceted sort of new era of governance, but to put it simply, it was a move to let service providers like common carriers in the transportation sector prioritize competition and and profit over those more public-minded principles like non-discrimination and universal service. And so naturally, a lot of service providers wanted to get out of rural communities because they were more expensive. And so this sort of new spate of laws starting around the 70s and, and really a trend continuing up till today, they facilitated the abandonment of rural communities by these service providers. And that abandonment could really be the nail in the coffin for a lot of rural communities' economic futures. If you had rail service and a bus service and whatever other kind of services would fall under the common carrier umbrella and then suddenly lost them, naturally your economic growth as a community is going to be hurt. Looking forward, you write that for any given community, the question should not be, do they contribute to the national interest, but rather, could they contribute to national interests? What role do you envision or what role do you see that economic regulation could have for rural economies in the future? And what could those rural economies contribute to the nation and the national interest? So my take on this is that we do still need rural communities. You see some folks kind of advocating the idea that they are part of the past, the future is urbanization, and that rural communities are obsolete. And I don't think that's true, uh, at least until we make some kind of dramatic technological changes. So so my take on this is that our food and energy systems are basically broken. Our infrastructure is crumbling and the effects of climate change are worsening every day. So I don't think it makes sense to look at, let's say, a former coal mining town in West Virginia and say, well, they don't mine coal anymore. They had better move to a city. Now they're not contributing. I think there's a lot of potential for struggling rural communities to secure a different future. And a lot of rural residents do have visions for a different future, but they need support from the rest of society. And there are a lot of ways distressed places need support, but one way we could think about using economic regulation to help places get the foundations they need for growth. So I I was just thinking about a hypothetical example. of What if we did have high-speed rail from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco? And what if there were a stop in the middle of the central Appalachian coal fields? What might that do for the region and how might that change its future? And in turn, how could the region kind of be making a new contribution to the national public interest? What would rural Americans think about this article and some of the proposals that it offers? And how might you respond to them? So I often get some pushback on the fact that I'm basically an East Coast academic liberal and have what probably sound like 
big government ideas for intervening in distressed rural communities and that rural voting patterns are kind of conflict with the values that I tend to advocate. I have questions in response to that question, though. My question for people who are concerned about that disconnect is, what do we make of the fact that the harshest rural poverty falls on rural communities of color and other rural minorities whose preferences really can't be represented at the ballot box? And then I do make the case in the article that this idea of the urban-rural divide is sort of a red herring in light of how interdependent we all are. So how to address rural socioeconomic marginalization isn't just for rural residents to decide. It's a matter of national concern that I think we should all be better informed about and that we all ultimately have a stake in. And what key takeaways would you like listeners of this podcast and readers of the article to take? So key takeaway number one for me is that we talk about rural communities as if they declined naturally somehow. And to be clear, not all rural communities are declining, but it is a national level trend that we're seeing. But I want people to know that deregulation pushed many of these communities over the edge toward decline and that that reflected a value judgment that rural communities weren't worth sustaining. But they are worth sustaining for all of the reasons I've said. And that's key takeaway number two for me. And I think we need to think more creatively and compassionately about how to enhance rural access to the amenities that many of the rest of us take for granted, like high-speed internet, grocery stores, and even bus stations. Our guest today has been Ann Eisenberg, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina. We've discussed her article, Economic Regulation in Rural America, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. And thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.